One of mankind's most prolific killers is harnessed by doctors to treat an untreatable infection. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. Today, we're joined by author Karen Masterson to discuss her new book, The Malaria Project. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Russell. It's nice to be here. So how did you first get the idea for this book? So I was going to the National Archives to look for something different. I was looking for Linus Pauling's records from World War II, and while I was there, I stumbled onto a memo also from World War II. It was from the National Research Council to the lead public health officer of the state of Massachusetts asking if federal researchers could come in and infect hospital patients at Boston Psychopathic with malaria so that new drugs could be tested on the infections. And I had I'd never heard of this, and it sounded to me to be something that shouldn't have happened. I was you know, wondering if I had another Tuskegee on my hands. I kept pulling more and more boxes and finding more and more records about what I came to understand as the Malaria Project. That wasn't the official name of it, but that was the unofficial name of what the 400 scientists who were involved in this project called it. And their goal was to find a drug to cure malaria because it was taking down hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops overseas trying to fight on both the Pacific side of the war and the Atlantic side of the war. So pre-World War II, can you give a brief overview of malaria in the United States? At the turn of the century and well into the 1930s, it was just all over the U.S. South. And the Rockefeller Foundation, which was then what the Gates Foundation is today to public health, it sort of drove the agenda, provided a lot of the money for public health initiatives, um, had focused on malaria because the head of the Rockefeller Foundation felt that malaria was crippling the South's ability to keep up with the North's rapid development. And as the North grew more modern-looking, the South still looked a lot like what, say, rural Tanzania looks like today. And so they created a malaria research station in Georgia where they collected scientists from all over the world, and they came and they studied the mosquitoes that carried malaria, and they studied the people who were seeded with malaria, and they worked on different strategies to try to reduce the mosquito population and treat people who were infected. And this became the model for eradicating malaria from the South. Um, they worked with, for example, uh, the dam construction companies because the way dams were constructed back then, you know, the walls went up and the water was impounded, and then whatever happened in the, wa- the impounded waters happened. And usually along the fingerling shorelines, you had a proliferation of anopheline mosquitoes, which is the mosquito that, mosquito that carries malaria. And then, and then the malaria rates would, you know, quadruple or, you know, be tenfold what they were before the dam went up. So the, the Rockefeller Foundation and the public, U.S. Public Health Service worked with these dam construction companies on strategies to impound the water in a way that would actually reduce mosquito populations. So you would increase the level of the water and then drop it so that the movement would kill off the larvae. You'd stock them with fish that eat mosquito larvae and use sprays and treat people near the waters so that you would bring that that basic case reproduction rate down and and slowly work towards elimination of malaria, and it, and it worked. So what treatments did we have for malaria pre-World War II? We had quinine. The Dutch controlled the quinine 
supply. They it, the quinine comes from the bark of uh, this chincona tree, and it's a very difficult tree to grow. But the Dutch figured out how to do it and do it in a way that produced high yields of quinine. And so they really supplied over 90% of the world's uh, quinine at a time when uh, uh, malaria was still a problem in all of southern Europe as well as the southern United States and and many other places. And so um, uh, the the Germans got in on this and tried to create a synthetic quinine to displace the Dutch and to take over that market. And so before the war, that's what they were working on, and they had made two drugs. One was called plasmachin, and the other one was called adabrin, and they were on the market well before World War II, but they were both pretty toxic, and they weren't good enough to replace quinine. So really, for us in the United States, we had quinine. Who was Julius Wagner Yarog? Dr. Yarog was a psychiatrist who, at the turn of the century, was trying to figure out how to treat his psychiatric patients. So back then, there were very few treatments for these hospitals, and the psychiatrists in charge were really seen as superintendents. You know, they gave palliative care, and they, you know, made sure the, the halls were mopped and, and, and slowly watched their patients die. And there was some very good uh, historical treatment of this and how that played in the minds of these psychiatrists and how that made them distant from their patients. And Yarug, in 1927, won the Nobel Prize in medicine. He's only one of two psychiatrists to ever win that prize because he came up with a treatment. He changed that dynamic between psychiatrists and patients, and he did it by giving malaria to neurosyphilitics. At the turn of the century, most psychiatrists had seen this phenomenon that when a fever would sweep through their patients, you know, whether it was typhus or caused by one of the, the streps or staphs or just the flu, when, when something came through that caused high fevers in patients, a few of them would recover from their infection and their psychosis. So they would walk out of the hospital completely cured, but no one had ever studied it. So Yara did a survey of all of the hospitals who had data and put that together in a paper, and he put, a, he put out a call to all of his colleagues to study this and figure out who were the patients who could benefit from fevers and what kind of fevers could be used to try to treat them. Well, there were some pretty bad outcomes and very poor study designs that were not good for patients. And so he decided he was going to do this himself and study this problem himself. And he tried TB. He tried to give some of his patients TB. And he did have a few walk out of the hospital cured of insanity, but then they died of TB. He used some other infections that didn't work out so well. But he theorized that malaria would be a great fever to use because you control certain kinds of it with quinine. The problem was he didn't have any malaria in Austria. You couldn't grow malaria in a Petri dish. You had to have a live infection. And then, so when World War I broke and the trenches were filled with malaria and, and infected soldiers, when those Austrian soldiers came back home, Yarg was able to capture some of their blood with the malarial parasites in it and then inject it into his patients. And so he did this over a couple of decades until he had over a thousand data points that he could look at and figured out from there that it wasn't the bipolars, it wasn't the schizophrenics who benefited, it was the neurosyphilitics, it was the the syphilis patients, particularly who came in with early signs of the neurological damage that the spirochetes cause, 
And in those patients, he could cure about 40% of them. And overall, of all the neurosyphilitics, they were called paretics back then, of all of the, the neurosyphilitics, he saw about a 30% cure rate. And that's what won him the Nobel Prize. And that's really amazing. And that was in a time pre-penicillin. So did his work kind of translate that across the ocean? Is this something we were doing in the United States? Well, yes. At first, at first the British, because, you know, we followed the British on a lot of things medical back then, and the Germans. I mean, the Germans were really leading the way, especially on medications. But for this, the British took it up you know, because they had colonial interests, and they really wanted to understand malaria. So they took it up as not only a way to treat their paretics, but also as a way to study malaria. So they set it up in a few hospitals throughout the country. Back then, the infection rate in these state hospitals from neurosyphilitics was about 20%. So Yarg had this rule, you only use Vivax. Vivax is the malaria you find in Latin America and Asia, back then in parts of Europe, not African falciparum because African falciparum doesn't respond to quinine quite as reliably and it can turn deadly in a day. So Yarg said, you know, this is something that all state hospitals should do if they can afford it, but just use this Vivax. And the British are like, well, we've got falciparum in our colonial holding, so we're going to use falciparum and Vivax. So they actually imported the strains that were infecting their colonial rulers and populations and used those to treat state hospital patients. Um, they did a study, and what they found over five years in 1,600 patients was a 25% cure rate, but 35% of the patients died either during or immediately after the treatment, and the rest were unchanged. As they were doing this, they, they followed uh, one hospital with 123 paretics, and over the course of two years, all but five of them died. So in their minds, the malaria therapy was a huge success, even though it probably sped up the, you know, the inevitable death in about 35% of the patients. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. John Russell, your host. We're talking with author Karen Masterson about her book, The Malaria Project. So when we get to World War II, it sure seems on both the, the Allies and the Axis, suddenly malaria became a much bigger deal, correct? Right. So immediately after the British, we started using malaria therapy in the United States. St. Elizabeth's in Washington, D.C., with its 6,000-bed facility, used it. Across the oceans, we were familiar with this malaria therapy process. And then war draws near, and we have a few scientists who get what's going to happen. They know that troops will be fighting in these highly malarious areas, and they go to our military leaders and say, we need a drug development program. We need to catch up with the Germans, because if they have a reliable drug and we don't. And the Japanese blockade Java, which they knew they would. Java was where all of the Dutch chinkona tree plantations were. You know, it was part of Japanese territory. We knew the Japanese would be able to blockade that supply. They said, we're going to have to have a drug. And the Germans have this great model. They're using this malaria therapy as a way to test their drugs on patients undergoing the therapy. Um, Bayer um, Pharmaceuticals, which was part of the big IG Farben uh, conglomerate, they were making experimental drugs, sending them to an asylum in Dusseldorf, and a doctor named Francioli was using those drugs to treat the uh, neurosyphilitic patients after they'd gone through their fevers. So, right, you go through the fevers, and then once patients were done with their fevers, they had to be treated so the, so 
that the malaria would be suppressed. Our doctor said, we need this, but the military didn't really have time and they didn't really get what these scientists were saying. You know, they're speaking a different language. And then comes the attack on Pearl Harbor and the attack on the Philippines. And after MacArthur's troops are forced down onto the Bataan Peninsula, where 80% of the local people are seeded with malaria. We knew this because the Rockefeller Foundation had done a study in the 1930s, so we knew how bad the malaria was going to be if our troops ended up there. They landed there with enough quinine to keep them safe from the malaria, but only for about a month. And when their quinine ran out, they fell by the thousands. And by the time of the surrender, more than 80% of them were sick with malaria. And the commanders all said that they had plenty of big guns and munitions and rifles to fight, but they had no soldiers well enough to do the fighting, and so they had to surrender. And that woke up the War Department. The War Department finally said, okay, well, we need this big project. We're going to open the spigot, and we're going to let you scientists do what you said you can do. Go find us a drug, because we're going to need it to get through this war. I thought the book was just amazing. I really had no idea how much malaria played a part in North Africa and Italy and the Pacific Theater, and especially Guadalcanal, which which you think about as a big battle. It might have been as much a big battle against the mosquitoes, correct? Oh, the mosquitoes were the biggest battle. During different periods of our time on Guadalcanal, the infection rate, the casualty rate because of infections was eight times, sometimes ten times greater than the battle casualty rate. So malaria was the number one medical problem of the war, and it was amplified on Guadalcanal and New Guinea and those islands in the South Pacific because the local people were seated with it, and we used local people to do all the hard labor for fighting the war. So troops and and locals were living side by side, and mosquitoes were feeding on both and bringing malaria. And, And the Japanese suffered greatly from malaria. What it turned out to be for strategy was whichever side could replace their men fastest would win the battle. So on Bataan, the Americans couldn't replace our troops, but the Japanese could. So the Japanese took the Philippines. On Guadalcanal, it was a fight to the finish. You might have heard of the Tokyo Express. Well, that was the narrow passage that the Japanese used through our naval protection to get more troops onto the island to replace the ones that were sick. There were battle casualties as well, but the larger attrition rate was because of malaria. But we replaced our troops faster. First the Marines landed, then we replaced them with the AmeriCal Division. We were just able to keep our numbers higher as we removed the the troops that were coming down with malaria. And so and so we took Guadalcanal. So back home we're doing experiments to figure out treatments for malaria on patients in mental institutions and prisoners. Did did we find something that, that helped win the war effort? We ended up having to take this drug Adabrin that the Germans had made. We didn't understand it. We didn't know how to use it. We had a a half dozen state hospitals enrolled in the program and lead investigators. One was James Shannon, who went on to be the head of the NIH in the 1950s. They gave malaria to patients, and by now they're no longer just giving malaria to neurosyphilitics. They're giving malaria to bipolar patients, to schizophrenics. They're giving them this malaria to any bodies they could because they needed the clinical material to test drugs. And Adabrin was the one that they tested the most because they weren't coming up with something new and they needed something. And there were studies that showed Adabrin could suppress malaria. James Shannon led the effort to try to figure out how to use this German drug because the making of a novel drug, a new one, wasn't producing anything fast enough. We didn't know how to make it. We didn't know how to use it. And 
he had to test on state hospital patients on what was then Welfare Island. It's now called Roosevelt Island. His patients were in Goldwater Memorial Hospital and Manhattan State Hospital. Another lead investigator had Milledgeville State Hospital in Georgia and the South Carolina State Hospital. Uh, Boston Psychopathic, as I mentioned earlier, was petitioned to join, and, and it did, and Alan Butler ran the program there. And they kept infecting patients trying to figure out what the best dosage was, and they thought that they had come up with it. They thought that they knew that we needed two hefty doses a week to saturate tissue and prevent malaria from developing. And so the orders went out on both sides of the war to start the Adabrin. Um, A couple of drug companies were making it. They weren't making it very well, but they were making it. And it turns out that we got the dosing wrong and figured it out only after we had overdosed troops on both sides of the war. So Rick Atkinson, who wrote Defining Trilogy on World War II, talks about this battle for Hill 609 in Tunisia and how it was actually the third pill that they took. They had a week of it, two pills, and then they took their third pill. And up and down the chain of command and reports coming into the the War Department all describe this sudden onset of uncontrolled diarrhea, of vomiting, of some people had terrible skin rashes, some experienced psychosis. It was just this horrible reaction as these troops are trying to fight almost hand-to-hand combat in the hills of Tunisia. Some of those things were happening on the Pacific side in the station hospitals. The staff had to take it too, and the staff were falling from it. It was a horrible mistake, and we kept having to study in these state hospital patients what was going wrong, and a guy named G. Robert Coatney, who wasn't even, he was a parasitologist, he wasn't even a doctor, but he, he was critical in finding a way to better understand the drugs that they were working with. He said, well, maybe we need to go into prisons because state hospital patients, really, they're not very good clinical material. And that changed the direction of the whole project. So now, instead of using state hospital patients to test the drugs, they just grew different strains of malaria in these state hospital patients. They were getting the strains from all the different battle zones, and they were growing those strains in state hospital patients. They would draw the blood and then fly it to the prisons where they would infect prisoners and then do the drug studies on prisoners because prisoners were healthier than these neurosyphilitics and psychotics and bipolar patients in the hospitals. And in doing that, they were able to understand the process for figuring out how to use a drug. They now had what they needed. They had prisoners to test the drugs and patients to grow the parasites, but they didn't have a drug yet, and then they struck it rich. When we captured Tunisia, we also captured a French doctor who had been commissioned by the Germans to go into the hills the green hills of Tunisia, the white adobe villages there, and used this brand-new drug to try to treat the malaria that occurred there every year. And so this Dr. Jane Schneider collected all this data from these villages using this experimental drug just as the Allied forces were landing on the continent, landing in North Africa. And as they rumbled across the crown of Africa towards Tunisia, he left the villages with all his data and his drugs, and he went to the hospital in Tunisia and worked for the Germans because they were occupying it and just kind of held on to his data and his pills until the war was over, until, until you know, the victor was decided. When the Allies came into the hospital, he cornered an American foot soldier and said, I have a cure for malaria. I have data and I have samples. I want you to take it. Don't give it to the British because I don't like the British. I'm French. 
I want you to take it, you Americans, send it back to the United States and develop this drug. It'll save your troops. But it took months. It took months for his reports to be translated from French to English. So the project finally got it in the fall of 1943, and it took many more months to figure out how to use this drug so that by the time the war was winding down, they were seeing this drug not as a way to protect troops, but as a way to keep the malaria that all these troops were going to come home with from seeping out into the population of the United States. It's a wonderful book. The book is The Malaria Project. It's kind of a cross between kind of a John Grisham kind of medical mystery and a, and a nice history book on World War II and the war in the Pacific. It's just a wonderful book. Karen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Dr. Russell. It was great to be here. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.